you would take your copy of God's Word and turn to Matthew 28. We will be reading the last part of the chapter, starting in verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. May I have a seat. Well, join me in prayer, beloved, as we consider God's word together. Our gracious God, we do come now to your word, asking that uh, it might have its way with us. May it go in full strength and in full power and full clarity upon your people this morning. We thank you for your people, dead and alive, modern and pre-modern, God, that they have laid such a groundwork for us, and we stand upon their shoulders. We are so thankful for the universal church. May you receive all the glory today in all things for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, welcome again to Calvary Redeeming Grace and our Sunday of Reformation Sunday. I want to speak to you today about the Reformation and world missions, uh, the missionary legacy of John Calvin. We're doing this because obviously it's Reformation Sunday, but we want to take time um, throughout our, or to break from our regular exposition of God's Word, specifically through Colossians right now, but there, I think there are t- times in the life of a church where to break from the normal preaching of God's Word uh, sequentially, verse by verse, to highlight um, what God has done throughout church history and what he will do uh, before he returns. So the Reformation and World Missions today, the missionary legacy of John Calvin. When you think of the Reformation, my guess is that you typically don't think of world missions, if you're anything like me. You probably think of a monk with a mallet and something to the effect of 95 theses. And what was he doing? Maybe you think of uh, Calvinistic theology, Reformed theology uh, even. Or as some contend, uh, the Reformation, quote, was a period of doctrinal squabbling that was not terribly interested in evangelism and missions. A historian, Gustav Warneck, argues the latter. He painted Calvin as missiological anemic, Due to his belief in the doctrines of predestination and election, I hope to show this morning that uh, those doctrines actually provoked Calvin for missions. He writes, quote, we miss, in the ref- in, we miss in the Reformers not only missionary action, but even the idea of missions. Their fundamental theological views hindered them from giving their activity and even their thoughts a missionary direction. End quote. Ruth Tucker writes, quote, Martin Luther was so certain of the imminent return of Christ that he overlooked the necessity of foreign missions. 
Calvinists, she says, generally use the same line of reasoning, adding the doctrine of election that made missions appear extraneous if God had already chosen those he would save. End quote. Uh, Robert Bellarmine, uh, Bellarmine, last one, he was a Catholic theologian in the 16th century, another Reformation period. He argues that one of the marks of a true church is its continuity with missionary passion of the apostles, and he's right. In his mind, Rome upheld this passion and thus stood in solidarity with the early church, but the Reformation did not. Bellarmine wrote, quote, In this one century, the Catholics have converted many thousands of heathens in the New World. Every year, a certain number of Jews have converted and baptized at Rome by Catholics who adhere in loyalty to the Bishop of Rome. The Lutherans, Bellarmine says, compare themselves to the apostles and evangelists, yet they still have among them a very large number of Jews in Poland and Hungary. They have the Turks as their neighbors, yet they have hardly converted so much as a handful, end quote. Are these views correct? Is it true that predestination and election hinder missions? And Bellarmine's claim that the reformers didn't stand with the apostles due to a lack of missionary passion and action, is that accurate? Well, besides the fact that the Reformers saw late medieval Catholicism as sub-Christian at best, I want to argue that the missionary legacy of John Calvin, should we listen to him, would both inspire and equip us for missions today. That's where I want to go. All right? Let me give you some sources that I've consulted because I'm not a historical theologian, so I'm going to try to stay in my lane. So here's the sources that I consulted you can trace these down on your own. Calvin's commentaries on Psalm 2, Psalm 110, Isaiah, Matthew, John, Acts, and the book of Romans. Calvin's Institutes on the Christian religion and Calvin's letters. By the way, if you don't have his letters, uh, you should get them and read them. So those are primary sources. Secondary sources, Bruce Gordon's biography, Calvin. David Calhoun's article, John Calvin, Missionary Hero or Missionary Failure. Michael Haken and Jeffrey Robinson Sr.'s book, To the Ends of the Earth, Calvin's Missional Vision and Legacy. Scott Manich's book, Calvin's Company of Pastors, my favorite, by the way. Pastoral Care in the Emerging Reformed Church, 1536 to 1609. And lastly, Joel Beakey's essay, John Calvin, Teacher and Practitioner of Evangelism. So... Those are my sources. That's where I get my information from. This is not original to me. So what we're going to do today, beloved, is we're going to open our Bibles and look at some texts that Calvin exegeted um, and gave us a, a bit of insight into his view of missions. There's going to be Bible today. There'll be, there'll be history today. There'll be theology today. There'll be quotes today. So hopefully we can fit it all in. I have two just broad points I want to get across. Calvin's awe-inspiring theology for missions. All right, Calvin's awe-inspiring theology. And the second point would be Calvin's um, ardent, calculated missionary endeavors. I know kind of long. Calvin's ardent, 
calculated missionary endeavors. All right, I have a lot to say. So I'm going to fire hose you today, and you go track down those sources. Fair enough? All right. First, Calvin's awe-inspiring theology. First subpoint: the victorious advance of Christ's kingdom. Calvin possessed an absolute optimistic view of the advancement of Christ's kingdom in this world. Go to Psalm 2. Psalm 2. I'm going to read a little bit from his commentary, but before I do, I want you to see the text that he's drawing from. Psalm 2 is a psalm about the messianic reign of Christ, both here in inauguration and obviously consummated at the end of the age. Psalm 2, 1, why do the nations rage and people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So these are the nations and they're plotting against God and rebelling against Christ. Verse 4, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king, that is Christ, on Zion, on my holy hill. That's right. Amen is right. And Calvin writes in Psalm 2 in this awe-inspiring theology, Wicked men may now conduct themselves as wickedly as they please, but they shall at length feel what it is to make war against heaven. The pronoun, Calvin says, is emphatic, I, by which God signifies that he is so far exalted above the men of this world that the whole mass of them could not possibly obscure his glory in the least degree. As often then as the power of man appears formidable to us, let us remember, Calvin says, how much it is transcended by the power of God. Whatever plots, he says, therefore men may form against us. Let this one consideration be sufficient to satisfy us. Men cannot render ineffectual the anointing of God. And it is this type of theology, this view of Christ's advancement of his kingdom, that we will see that eventually led Calvin to his missionary Endeavors. His comments in Psalm 110 turn there. Psalm 110. I'll just read verses 1 and 2. Again, a messianic psalm. Although they're all about Christ, aren't they? In some degree. Verse 1, the Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule, he says, in the midst of your enemies. Calvin in Psalm 10 says this. Let us learn that however numerous those enemies may be who conspire against the Son of God and attempt the subversion of his kingdom, all will be unavailing. 
for they shall never prevail against God's immutable purpose. But on the contrary, that they shall, by the greatness of his power, be laid prostrate at Christ's feet. Christ's kingdom, again, this advancement of Christ's kingdom, Christ's kingdom shall be vastly extended because God would make his scepter stretch far and wide. How astonishing it is, Calvin says, that the whole world is leagued in opposition to Christ's kingdom. It continues to spread and prosper. Let us learn confidently to repose on this support that however much the world may rage against Christ, it will never be able to hurl him from the right hand of the Father. Hardly the voice of one who was guilty of, quote-unquote, missionary absenteeism. In the prefatory address to the Institutes of Christian Religion, Calvin writes to the French Catholic king that God the Father has appointed Christ to rule from sea to sea and from the rivers even to the ends of the earth. It was this global perspective, beloved, this view of Christ's kingdom that gave Calvin's theology a, quote, genuine dynamism and a forward movement, end quote, Michael Hagen. So again, Christ's kingdom is advancing. You see that in some of his comments in Psalm 2 and 10. Second subpoint under this awe-inspiring theology, the boundless grace of God for sinners. This is going to, this is going to shock you, okay, for you cage stagers a little bit. The boundless grace of God for sinners. In his commentary in 1 Timothy, you know what, why don't we go there too? 1 Timothy chapter 2. First Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So Paul wants us to pray for the kings and presidents that rule us. This is good, he says, and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires, look at this, all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And I think Calvin is right that all people doesn't mean every single person who's ever lived, but all kinds of people, kings and queens, presidents, peasants, farmers, all kinds of people. There is one God, verse 5, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Listen to Calvin's comments on this verse. He says, we must not restrain his fatherly goodness to ourselves alone. Again, you're getting Calvin's theology here from missions. The gospel is called the mighty power of God and salvation is to all them that believe. It is a gate of paradise, Calvin says. There is no people and no rank in the world that is excluded from salvation. This is the theologian of election, you could say. I don't think that's right, but some say. Because God wishes that the gospel should be proclaimed to all without exception, Calvin says. 
Jesus came to extend his grace over all the world. End quote. In that same sermon, Calvin says, God wants his grace to be known to all the world, and he has commanded that his gospel be preached to all creatures. We must seek the salvation of those who today are strangers to the faith, who seem to be completely deprived of God's goodness. This is John Calvin. In his commentary on Acts, go to Acts 13. Verse 48. Calvin seems to go out of his Calvinist way to make some startling remarks here, to set forth God's grace to all. Acts 13, 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. So there's not much ambiguity here. Those who have believed, look at the the text. Those who believe have been chosen, have been appointed, ordained to eternal life. The text says Calvin roots saving faith in election, and he's exactly right. Saving faith is rooted in election. Nevertheless, as Calvin did in many other places, Calvin warned the unrepentant not to blame their rejection of God on the fact that they may not have been chosen. Quote, many entangle themselves in doubtful and thorny imaginations while they seek for their salvation in the hidden counsel of God. In other words, should I come to God? I don't know if if I'm elect. And Calvin says, don't, don't, don't argue like that. Don't think like that. Calvin says, let us learn that the election of God is therefore proved by faith. That our minds may be turned to Christ. And then Calvin says this, let this suffice you. That whoever believes in the only begotten Son of God has eternal life. Yes. In other words, election is no alibi for unbelief. It is no alibi for unbelief. From a human perspective, salvation comes not to those who are elect. From a human perspective, salvation comes to those who trust in Christ. And Calvin is incessant upon this point. Don't meddle in the doctrine of election. Flee to Christ. Michael Haken. Thus the lost must not worry over whether they are elect or not, but rather they at once should flee to Christ. Third subpoint: the gospel must be offered freely. The gospel must be offered freely. Holding intention, divine sovereignty, and human responsibility, Calvin said that the work of missions is God's work, not ours. Quote, yet he employs the agency of men that he, may, that he may awaken in them an anxiety about the salvation of souls. Citing the parable of the sower, Matthew 13, Calvin explains that Christ sows the seed of life everywhere, 
gathering his church, not by human means, not by human cleverty, but by heavenly power. The gospel, he said, does not fall from the clouds, from the clouds like rain, Calvin says, but is brought by the hands of men to where God has sent it. Do you see it? The elect aren't going to get saved by some gospel lightning bolt. The elect are going to hear the gospel by you and I going to them and preaching the gospel to them. The power to save rests with God, but he reveals the salvation through the preaching of the gospel and therefore the need to offer the gospel freely is immense. So I hope you can see that Calvin's theology was by no means, again, guilty of missional absenteeism. The reformers in general, and Calvin in particular, provided a theological framework for global missions, and I pray we have it. Here they are again, the victorious advance of Christ's kingdom in the world, the boundless grace of God for sinners, and the free offer of the gospel to the ends of the earth. That's our theology for missions. So, secondly, Calvin's ardent, calculated missionary endeavors. This is really fun stuff. First, Geneva, where Calvin ministered, was a missionary center. All right? Not exactly, again, what you think of Calvin for, but it was. Beginning in 1542, Protestants from various countries, England, Netherlands, Italy, and Scotland, fled to Geneva due to religious persecution. So significant was the influx of refugees that the, pop that the population in Geneva doubled by 1555 and peaked around 20,000 in 1560. There's just a massive influx. Calvin sees this, and I think... I think he's pretty happy about it, but he's a little overwhelmed. He writes to a friend, Farrell, in 1551. Listen to what he says in this letter. I'm very much preoccupied with the foreigners who daily pass through this place in great numbers. Should you pay us a visit next autumn, you will find our, our city considerably increased. A pleasing spectacle to me, Calvin says if they do not overwhelm me with their visits. So he's happy that this influx of refugees coming from these countries of persecution, but he doesn't want them to visit him so much in the pastoral office. In the end, Calvin saw this influx of refugees as nothing short of God's providence and kindness upon Geneva. He wrote to Bullinger, quote, when I consider how very important this corner is for the propagation of the kingdom of Christ, I have good reason to be anxious that it should be carefully watched over. Calvin therefore took full advantage of the energies and gifts of many of these refugees, quote, so as to make Geneva central to the expansion of Reformation thought and piety throughout Europe. So in other words, Geneva became the missionary center in Europe during Calvin's ministry there. And, um, the two main ecclesiastical institutions that Calvin set up in Geneva to promote missions was the Geneva Academy and a company of pastors, or they called themselves the Venerable Company, or maybe others called them that, I'm not sure. 
the Genevan Academy was the training ground where these refugees would come and Calvin and others would train these men uh, in uh, exegesis, in reformed theology, in pastoral care, and from that academy, they would send them back out to be ministers around the world, especially in France. So the academy was the somewhat training ground for missions. The other institution he set up was a company of pastors, mid-1540s. This included pastors and theological faculty meeting on Fridays to address concerns related to religious life in Geneva and in Reformed churches elsewhere throughout Europe. So the company of pastors was the external face of the missionary movement in Geneva, and the academy was where they trained these men. Listen to Philip Hughes. He says, Calvin's Geneva was something much more than a haven and a school. It was not a theological ivory tower that lived to itself and for itself, oblivious to the responsibility of the gospel to the needs of others. People in Geneva were equipped and refitted for this haven that they might launch out into the surrounding ocean for the world's need, bravely facing every storm and peril that awaited them in order to bring the light of Christ's gospel to those who were in the ignorance and darkness from which they themselves originally come. They were taught in this school in order that they might in turn teach others the truth that has set them free. So the whole point of the Genevan Academy in the company of pastors was to train and send Train and send. Train and send. Again, hardly the voice of one or the actions of one not really committed to missions and only committed to predestination or election. So here's Geneva, this hub of missions. Secondly, missions to France. Calvin was vitally concerned about missions to his native land, France. France, however, was not too keen on reformed ministers and missionaries. Henry II, somewhat, his successor, Francois II, along with the House of Guise, were determined to eliminate the Protestant reformed cause. Protestants were declared outlaws who could be killed freely and legally without fear of arrest. And it was in this context that Calvin prepared and trained men to leave the safe haven of Geneva and evangelize France, which, by the way, is where most of these refugees came from in the first place, leaving, of course, due to persecution. Philip Hughes, again, describes the climate into, into which these refugees or missionaries were sent. He says, it's hard to exaggerate the extreme hazardous nature of the assignment undertaken by these missionaries. The unbridled hostility to the Reformation meant that the, most, meant that the utmost secrecy had to be observed in sending out these ambassadors. They were dependent on friendly cottagers for food and hiding in case of necessity. 
when they arrived there too, the utmost caution had to be observed lest they should be discovered, apprehended, tortured, and killed. Where a congregation was mustered, services were conducted in a private home behind locked doors or in the shadows of a woodland hillside. Joel Beakey writes, quote, many of the French refugees who returned as pastors were eventually killed, but their zeal encouraged the hopes of their church members, end quote. In 1555, listen to these numbers. France was home to only five reformed churches. Five. By 1562, seven years later, the number of the reformed churches was over 2,000. With a total number of members estimated at 2 million, 10% of the entire population of France. So enormous was the need that, the near, that near the end of the 1550s, new congregations in France were calling upon Geneva to send even more missionaries. So, who do you have in the academy that you can send us? Who's ready? There's Christians being killed. We're trying to train them and disciple them in reform thought, exegesis, pastoral care. We need more pastors, Calvin. Churches are being planted like wildfire. Watered by the rain of persecution, Protestant churches were spreading throughout France. And by the way, the women of the Reformation during this period were amazing. Their, their support of hospitality, of financial backing. I just didn't have time to add their own story. They should get a story of their own day. They were amazing in this work of French missionary and evangelism going across that country. In the August of 1558, Calvin wrote to a friend, God protects in a miraculous manner the little churches that are scattered up and down France. Amid the atrocious threats of our enemies, he gives an increase which no one would have dared to hope. The number of the faithful is everywhere increasing, Calvin says, end quote. Five to over 2,000. Incredible. Not all refugees' pastors were sent to France. Some went even as far as Brazil. So our last point, missions to Brazil. In 1555, an opportunity came to establish a Protestant missions colony on the island off the shore of Brazil near Rio de Janeiro. Leading the mission was Nicolas Durand, who had known Calvin since the 1530s in Paris. Durand seemed sympathetic to the cause of the Reformation, wrote to Calvin asking the reformer for pastors to join the mission. The company of pastors sent two ministers and 11 laymen who arrived in Brazil on March 10, 1557. As it turns out, however, the mission failed. 
Arguments arose between the Genevan Protestants and some of the Roman Catholics among the colonists over the nature of the Lord's Supper. Sad, isn't it? The meal that binds us. Durand, Calvin's lifelong friend, turned against the Protestants. On February 9th, 1558, just outside Rio de Janeiro, Durand strangled three Genevan Protestants and threw them into the sea. The rest fled for their lives. And later, the Portuguese attacked and destroyed the remainder of the colony. And so Calvin's missions to Brazil was not as successful, you could say, as it was to France. Let me close by adding a few lessons to apply, and I'll be brief. Uh, lesson number one. Churches on mission must be first schools of theology. Churches on mission must be first schools of theology. When we send, we send people who are discipled and trained, equipped. And Calvin understood that, and the Reform cause understood that in general. When you send, you send in a sense your best. And Calvin, through the company of pastors in this academy, developed a pipeline, you could say, that the churches in Geneva were schools of training. They were schools of theology. Because it mattered what you sent out in person and also in content. So one, churches on mission must be first schools of theology. And again, not ivory tower, but deep embedded sound doctrine and sound character. Two, lack of visible success is not a cause for discouragement. Lack of visible success is not a cause for discouragement. The Brazilian mission didn't turn out all that well. Yet 100 years later, the reform cause arrives again, and it does. You never know what the Lord is doing as we send and as we go. What we see with our eyes is Rarely, if ever, what the Lord is actually doing. And even then, how do we measure success? Lack of visible success is not cause for discouragement. I mean, you want to see with the eye of faith. That's right. And third, and lastly, home support is equal in importance to missions abroad. Home support is equal in importance to missions abroad. And I may not have said that prior to reading Calvin's letters or some of them. But what you see in Calvin's letters is a monumental support system as he's writing these letters to these missionaries. One last story. In 1552, five young Frenchmen were sent out from Geneva to preach the gospel in Lyon. During their travels, they met a stranger who offered himself as their fellow traveler. 
When they arrived in Lyon, this fellow traveler pressed the five young men to stay with him. They consented without any suspicion. But the man's deceit prevailed, and young men were arrested and imprisoned, and one year later burned at the stake. Calvin wrote at least two letters to these young men. You can read them. He wrote two young letters to these young men, at least. His last letter, Calvin writes, quote, You must keep this sentence in mind, that he who dwells in you is stronger than the world. Picture that, right? You're in a, you're in a dungeon, about to be killed. And here is a letter from John Calvin, and he says, He who dwells in you is stronger than the one in the world. We who are here, Calvin says, in Geneva, will do our duty in praying that God would glorify himself more and more by your resolve, and that he may, by the consolation of the Holy Spirit, sweeten and endear all that is bitter to the flesh. That in contemplating that heavenly crown, you may be ready without regret to leave all that belongs to this world. End quote. Home support is equal in importance to missions abroad. Get a theology that will inspire you to preach the gospel and let's send our very best. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we are humbled at the work of your people throughout the ages. And we pray that this this church here, Calvary redeeming grace, blood-bought we are, may have an awe-inspiring theology that triumphs through the world. And may we have an ardent, calculated missionary efforts that spread across here in Denver and around the world. To God be the glory. Amen.